three times in this place called Gethsemane. Three times alone, abandoned by those closest to him. Three times Jesus prays. Listen to these again. Jesus fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. A second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. A third time he went away once more and prayed, saying the same thing. Three times Jesus prays, Take this cup away if possible, but not what I want. Three times Jesus prays, abandoned by those closest. And what is the disciples' inability to stay awake during this time of trial that Jesus undergoes? Then a kind of precursor, a foreshadowing of their departure from him at the end. Before the commencement of Jesus' public life, not in a garden this time, but in a wilderness. Jesus was also tempted three times by Satan to be the kind of Messiah that everyone wanted him to be, that everyone expected him to be, that everyone was expecting. The kind of Messiah who would crush their enemies. The kind of Messiah who would rule over an empire of subordinates. You remember the constant temptation that comes back to Jesus three times If you are the Messiah, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Messiah, three times Jesus rejects that temptation. He rejects the temptation to receive a gift, namely all of the kingdoms of the earth. And instead, Jesus spends his life articulating a different kind of kingdom, not a kingdom of rulers and subordinates not a kingdom of masters and slaves, but a kingdom of selflessness and peacemaking, a kingdom without enemies, a kingdom without enemies, a kingdom without greed, a kingdom without status, a kingdom without rank, perhaps above all, a kingdom without fear. Fear is one of those strange Strange human emotions, isn't it? When I first think of the word fear, maybe the first image that comes to mind is someone cowering or cowardly. Someone so petrified that they can't take the next step. Someone backed up almost into a state of paralysis. I know about you, heights and snakes. Both are more than enough to freeze me in place. Heights almost make my body shut down. I can't take that next step. But I think fear is a bit more deceptive, a bit more devious than that, isn't it? Because what is it other than fear that's at the root of our competitiveness? If I don't reach out and grab it, someone will get there first. If I don't take the advantage someone else will take advantage of me. There's something deeply motivating about fear. Fear doesn't make us stop in place. Fear, for many of us, drives us forward. 
If I don't secure a place for my child in that school, they will be left behind. If I don't secure an advantage on their part, someone else is going to overtake them. If I don't grab it, no one will give it to me. Our lives, increasingly, I think, are saturated by fear. It's no wonder that fear has become such a driver in modern politics. Let me just bring back to your mind a few examples that we've heard quite recently, both here and overseas. Politicians warning, for instance, that rapists and pedophiles and murderers and drug dealers are there lurking just on the other side of our borders. They're coming to take your job, to take your place in the hospital queue, to take your place in traffic, to take your place at university, to take your place in school. And so we can, no, we must be extraordinary and extraordinarily cruel in the lengths that we go to keep them out, to keep them away. Think about those fearful white men marching at St. Kilda Beach or in Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting, they will not be replaced by Jews, by Muslims, by immigrants. Think of those pathetic, fearful white men going armed into synagogues and into mosques. Not that long ago, on a Friday morning just like this, to gun down worshipers just like us even if they are quietly at prayer, even if they are elderly or women or children. Or politicians telling voters that those who want to minimize our reliance on fossil fuels are coming to take away your V8s, take away your Utes, take away your weekends. Or politicians telling voters that those who object to the way that we kill animals en masse for our consumption are coming to take away your livelihoods or take away your ability to enjoy a barbecue. It's no wonder that across the world, people are turning increasingly to strong leaders who will keep away that which we fear. It's no wonder that our public life is full of commentators and bloviators who make a living telling fearful young men not just what they've lost, but who took it from them. Ultimately, you see, fear is a form of idolatry. Fear is a form of egotism, because sitting enthroned on top of this kingdom of fear is something that a great novelist named Iris Murdoch called the fat, relentless ego, a way of life that puts me at the center and puts everyone else, everything else, everything that exists in my orbit. They exist for my pleasure. If you're interested, Iris Murdoch said that the opposite of this kind of fear is love, because love is the ability to regard other things in the world as existing, and they don't have to exist for my pleasure. I think this way of understanding fear goes a long way towards explaining why it is that fear doesn't lead to paralysis for many of us, but fear can turn into violence. As soon as we feel things spinning out of our orbit, as soon as things are slipping out of our control or slipping out of our grasp, what is violence but a way of reimposing our will on our world, of taking back what we're afraid we're going to lose? Beneath all of this, I think, is something pathetically, basically, fundamentally human. 
This is what I want. This is what is owing to me. This is what I'm going to take. This is exactly the temptation that Satan held out before Jesus those three times in the wilderness. All this is yours. All these kingdoms, they belong to you. This is your right. Just reach out your hand and take it. This is the same temptation the serpent used in another garden, remember. When the serpent held out to Adam and Eve, you don't have to be dependent on anyone or anything else. You don't have to be a creature in another God's creation. You can be at the center of your own creation. You can be your own God. Just reach out and grab the fruit. Take that which is owing to you. Take that that you've been denied. Jesus has spent to this point his entire life from that wilderness to this garden, refusing, rejecting, and teaching others to reject that kind of fear of being dependent on others, teaching others to reject the fear of not being in control. Just cast your mind back a few weeks ago to the Sermon on the Mount. Is there anything that is more of a death blow to a life lived in fear than this? Listen to what Jesus said. Therefore, I tell you, don't be afraid for your life, what you will eat or drink. Don't be afraid about your body or what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at the flowers of the field, how they grow. They don't labor or spin. And I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, how much more will God clothe you? Isn't all that just another way of saying, not my will, but yours? When we read the events that are beginning to transpire in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think it's easy for us to look at what Jesus does and what he does not do. To look at his demeanor and to say, see that all of his behavior is kind of passive. It's easy, isn't it, to see what is just about to transpire around Jesus and to see him as almost like a little piece of flotsam amid a sea that's roiling and raging. Jesus, it seems, does so little compared to the active betrayal of Judas, compared to the scheming of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, compared to Peter, compared to the companion, which some gospels say is Peter, who, when the night was shattered by the mob that came to seize Jesus, whipped out a sword lashed out, trying to bring the situation back under control. Peter, you see, is the serpent in this garden. Peter's been the one who has been the voice in Jesus' ear, telling him, you don't have to relinquish control. You don't have to be taken where other people lead you. You can bring your will 
onto this situation. You can take control for yourself. Remember, just 10 chapters ago, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he must, quote, suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed. And Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Never, Lord, you don't need to let this happen to you. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. And here, too, in the garden, Jesus rebukes his disciples. Don't you think I can pull out my own sword? Don't you think I can petition my father to send 12 legions of angels to rescue me? But not what I want. Not my will, but yours. It's easy to think that Jesus is being completely passive here in the garden. But in fact, Jesus is the only one not acting out of fear. Jesus is the only one not acting out of fear. The Jewish leaders are afraid that they will lose their status. The Romans are afraid that they will lose their empire. The disciples are afraid that they will lose control the only one not trying to bend the world to his will, the only one who has the courage to throw his life entirely on the will of his loving Heavenly Father is Jesus. Three times he prays in the garden, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but yours.